0: Welcome to Soulful Connections. I'm Amanda Solar, host and creator of the podcast and SoulfulLiving.com. This is the place people will connect you to their stories, their journeys, and how they've found meaning in their lives. Join us. Let's connect. Connection So, I am here with my favorite name of anybody that I have actually interviewed and probably will, Ifyoma Aduba. I almost can't call you Ify because which is what you go by because I just love the name Ifioma so much. Um first of all, welcome. Thank you. It's great. So thank you. And secondly, well let me just tell that you're the executive director of the Entrepreneurs Funders Network. Yes. Is that correct?
1: Entrepreneurship Funders Network. Yes. Okay.
0: And I'm going to ask you just what that does and what do you do? But first can I ask you what is the or can I ask you what the origin of your name
1: is? Absolutely. Um yes, cuz I frankly have come to really love my name. Um, mostly because I love like the origin story and kind of like just the like the connections that I have through my name um so first of all it's pronounced Ifoma oh it is and um which I've had like I don't know like five people over the course of my lifetime ever get that right the first time um my father uh was Nigerian he passed away just a couple years ago my mother um I think it would describe herself as like a white girl born and raised in Dulles, Pennsylvania. And um, they met in college. Uh, They got married at a time where it wasn't legal in every state for that to actually happen. But when they had kids, my mother, whose name is Karen, um, deferred to my father's family tradition, which was to have elder women in the village that my father grew up in name the children. Um, I, th- there was, um, a older woman who had passed away a few months before I was born and they believed that her spirit was coming back in me. And so that's, they gave me the name Ifoma, which means this girl is something very good. And, um, I will tell you, and it sounds kind of a little hokey and probably there are people who know me who would, I can't believe if he's actually saying this, but, um, there are times in my life where I've had some decision to make. and I um I tend to I, like I often have very vivid dreams. I talk to myself in my dreams. and every so often, some sort of female figure shows up when I'm trying to make a decision. and I've just come to believe that that's who that is. Um,
0: gives me chills. So tell me again, where did your father
1: grow up? My father was Nigerian. He was born in Nigeria, raised there, and um, ended up in the United States on a scholarship to college. Um, He was um, a big, big nerd. (laughs) A big nerd who um, just took education so seriously because he recognized that he was like a handful that had this opportunity. And so he came to the United States and was a student at Lehigh University. Um, And my mom was at Moravian, and that's how they met.
0: Amazing. And so when you were little, you always knew you were going to get a Like, he was very focused (laughs) on education. Is that the deal?
1: So he was very focused on education. And it's so funny, because I think we all have, like, these interesting kind of images and memories of my dad, which um, came out, especially in the last, my dad passed away in 2021. And, um, and kind of going through that experience and um, I think in agreement the process, there were times where we we're like, okay, like he was stern, <laughs> he was stern, he took education very seriously, um, I think, was, you know, and and when I got older and, like, actually read stuff about Nigeria, and ta- like, read about the Nigerian Civil War and what it must have been like for him to not be in Nigeria at the time of that, but really aware of things that were happening there, um, just he deeply, deeply valued opportunity, is what I would say, and education was one of them. I think we all thought we have to get an education, that's what dad wants, and... And we have memories of things like over the summer having to do like math worksheets and all that kind of thing, right? And um, and it wasn't just me or my siblings, it also included like cousins, Like you know, it was just this thing. I have a, a cousin who works in finance who literally was like, Thank God I had to do worksheets over the summer, but um. What I came to, I think, really understand differently as an adult is that he really valued opportunity and he really just didn't want any of us to ever squander opportunity. So it wasn't so much education, Um, like education was a pathway, but it was whatever you were gonna do, like figure out, you had the opportunity to explore it, find it and try and do it as the best you could. But I was always going to go to college one, because I did think like my parents really valued education and both of my parents are very highly educated. Um, I also think college is a pathway out. Like I was the kid who was always trying to be like, I have to leave home, I have to leave. Like I was in Doylestown in my high school years. We moved around a little bit when I was younger, but like it was my, it was my way out. I was like, you go to college, you got a little bit of a safety net and a cushion, but you're not at home. And then you'll figure out what to do from there.
0: And what did, can I ask what your parents did sure. for a living? Like, what was their interest or what did they do?
1: Sure. So, my mother um, actually trained and passed the bar exam in New York. She was trained as a lawyer. She discovered very quickly she did not love working in law. Um, and frankly, uh, I think also just recognized. Um, that my father was going to follow a path that kind of moved him around a little bit, and she needed to have flexibility to do that. Um, she re- she worked for many years, maybe, maybe close to 20, I don't know, but um, before she retired as the church secretary at Bellstown United Methodist Church. Um, um, so, like, we joke about her being, like, like a super-educated church (laughs) library. Right, right. But she also, like, she did a lot to support my dad, who, um, frankly, was incredibly entrepreneurial and started a lot of his own businesses. My dad trained as an engineer. He worked for a while in New York with Con Edison, had several other jobs. But really, um, like, he was incredibly passionate about figuring out how to... Make things better in Nigeria, and so when I was a kid, that manifested in he had a company he was uh, designing and building water systems, creating better access to water in Nigeria. Wow. So he lived in Nigeria for a couple of years as he was doing that. Stop it, and then um, literally uh, in his in later years, and he was we and I think we joked about it that that he was going to be this that one of those people who just worked till his very last day. And um, so as much as he was like, we would talk about like retirement and that kind of thing. He never stopped, he's again, he's a nerd. He would, he never stopped working. And he was very interested in alternative power sources. And so solar, wind, that kind of thing. Nigeria has a population that is so, so large that it's not well supported by their power grid. And he was very aware of the fact that if you have, if you have to deal with things like the electricity going off on a regular basis especially in a university setting you are going to lose your you're going to lose your future population students people who are trying to accomplish things to other countries they can't study and accomplish and test and experiment in a, in a solid way in this setting so they have to go somewhere else and so i was very interested in like tapping into alternative solutions to that and literally two days before my dad passed away. I walked in to the living room. He was sitting in front of his computer. He had lost his ability to talk. And so he was doing a lot of writing notes and like kind of whispering. And he had me go through his email and pointed to something that he wanted me to help him with. And I opened it up and he was trying to get me to help him calculate do a load analysis on a home in Nigeria. Because they were gonna do a solar power installation there. And I literally was like, hold on a second, Dad. And I went to my mom and I was like, do you know what he's doing? <laughs> is <Wow>. <laughs> like his last breath. This was so he
0: was sick one. leading up to his death. It wasn't a sudden death. No,
1: he was diagnosed in early 20, 21 with he had um cancer. It was in his salivary glands, so he had a, a, a huge tumor. And it had, like, it had been misdiagnosed as Bell's palsy, because the initial way that it kind of showed was like Mm this in his face. And, but it was right, that that Bell's palsy diagnosis was in 2020, when everybody was terrified of COVID. And so doctor's appointments were quick, they might have only been online. So he wasn't sent to a specialist, it was six months after the Bell's palsy, where he was like still complaining, his face hadn't changed, he was having pain in his ear, that they finally sent him to an ENT who did scans and was like, you have to go to Penn. <laughs> and wow. And it's just in an, in a, a horrifically aggressive form of cancer. And um and so from that point forward it was kind of about buying time and, and creating comfort. Um but it was, and it was a time that was for me. Um, like I think it made it better and worse when he actually died in some ways, because they knew, like I like intellectually, I knew, like like he's he won't. Of course, so. there's no cure. Um, oh. But I was also doing the, the I was driving to chemotherapy. I was helping. Um, my mom, him, him and my mom, out as much as possible, like back and forth to the city, to appointments. I was sitting in doctor's appointments with him and, um, and it was like this incredible, incredible gift of time. Wow. Like, leading up to that, to the end that when he died, I was like, oh, I mean, it floored me. Like it was gut-wrenching. And, um, but i like, I would not trade that time.
0: You had that time. You know, he sounds incredible because he doesn't just sound um you know ambitious and Mm -hmm. intelligent he sounds so committed and dedicated um to to others that and then your mom being a a church secretary that's of service yeah too were you raised methodist is that
1: so my Early church memories are going to church with my grandmother, my mom's mother, who um, was also in this area, and she in Doylestown, and she attended, she and her sister attended Salem United Church of Christ. So I was there through kind of my teen years. Um, I went to college, I moved to California, and it wasn't until I mo- when I moved back here, by the time I moved back here, my parents had moved um, over to Doylestown United Methodist, and so I kind of went there by default. Right. I will say, like, what I grew up in a way that I, I didn't realize, like, it's right, you never know, like, you just assume everybody has the same experience you have. You don't realize there's anything different or anything special about your experience. And I grew up in a house that had been built by my mom's family, um, very intentionally to house multiple generations and so there were always three generations in the house at some points in my childhood there were four um so I knew both of my great grandmothers I knew my grandmother, I knew her sister like we were all like they were just all there and um and it wasn't until it literally wasn't until I was, I was an adult where I was like what do you mean you didn't? like I just I knew their grandparents and then I met people who were like uncomfortable around older people and I was like I don't understand. But um,
0: you know what's crazy about that? What's crazy about that is if you had told me that your father did that, I would say, oh, that makes sense. I picture Nigeria with multi-generations living together. And the fact that it's your mother's side is so intriguing.
1: Well, and my dad was raised in a village by like, you know, like kind of everybody. But it was like him, his siblings, his cousins, everybody with a grandmother who raised them all. And so both of my parents in kind of right incredibly different parts of the world had had this very similar family experience. And so I do think a big piece of why my parents' marriage lasted and 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 was as strong as it was was because they came in with like again it looked really different um, and they maybe hadn't, wouldn't necessarily be able to at- articulate it in like a, you know, a personal but right. they had this kind of, like, you take care of people, you take care of family. And it just was the way that it was. And, you know, I think it was the first time I had to do a background check for a job. And it was like, list the people you have lived with. And I literally called <laughs> my mom and I was like, you know, what's a pain? Like y'all open the doors to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like I'm just gonna have to leave people off of this and hope that nobody's like what about this person because yeah. they did like you know from the day they were married my um, my dad has my one of my dad's younger sisters jokes about the fact that my parents got married But my parents were married in England they were living in England in the time and my dad's father sent her to live with my parents to continue her education in England and she to this day jokes she was like I can't imagine what your parents thought like they'd been married like 15 minutes and it was like here's an 18 year old like <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you gotta it. but that was just like to this day the door is kind of always open and people come in and you, and that's what you do and again it was like it took me many adult years to figure out like That that is just at the core of who I am is this belief that there's more than enough. As people argue about whether or not there's resources, right? I sit in nonprofit work where people talk about there's never enough, and I really believe the opposite. I think there's more than, and it's just like how we bring it together and how we support each other. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, my dad growing up used to always tell the story, uh, this biblical story of like fishes and loaves, where Jesus gathered all these people, and then there's always these. Fish that keep coming out of this basket, no matter how many people. And my dad always says that that story is to illustrate that there's always enough.
1: You there's know? Always enough. Yeah, yeah. I so, have a very clear memory when I was um, I was probably about third, fourth grade. We were living in Nigeria at the time. My dad did a lot of work contracted with the Nigerian government, which is something like I I don't recommend anybody do. It's just like, there's too much there's too much corruption and uncertainty. And so it would be like, he'd do work, he'd be waiting for payment. We didn't have much. And I, like, I didn't realize it, but I had this memory and my mother and I have talked about this many times over the years of them standing in the kitchen, realizing like, we have one meal left. We have one meal left. We're going to have to figure this out. And people knocked on the door. And I watched my mother add water to soup to be able to feed... This this family who had just shown up, and the next day payment on something came through. Things were fine, like and like it's like there's- That gives like, me chills,
0: literal like, chills.
1: And and I think those are things that again, like you don't know it at the time, but when I look back and people ask, like, oh, how did you end up where you are and what's your path been, like that is a moment where I thought, like, oh no, there's always a. Mm-hmm.
0: Can I ask? Well, first of all. The difference between Nigeria and Doylestown feels like it would be vast. Yes. (laughs) Did you start out in Doylestown and then you moved to Nigeria and then you went back? Is that how it worked?
1: Yeah. So my parents moved around a little bit. They landed in Doylestown for a period of time when they first came back to the U.S. And um, were here for a few years, then moved to New York. I was actually born in New York City. And um, and then probably when I was like four or five, I was probably about five, we moved back to Doylestown and it was always a family reason. So there was like a family member that needed some added support. We came back to Doylestown and I did first and second grade at Linden Elementary. And then my dad was traveling back and forth to Nigeria a good bit. And so we ended up moving to Nigeria. Um, I was, And I so I was there for two years um, in Nigeria. I attended an, uh, the American International School there and then was back here for fifth and sixth grade. Yeah.
0: Did you want to go? Do you remember how you felt about that move?
1: I, um, so I have, I don't have as clear memory of like, did I want to go? I would imagine that I probably was like just distraught that I was leaving like friends or, friends or Yeah. Um, we had traveled to Nigeria a lot. We used to do a lot of like back and forth to see family, that kind of thing. And so I wasn't unfamiliar with Nigeria, but the idea of living there, I would imagine there was probably a a part of me that was like whiny brown about it. But um, I loved being there. I love that I had the experience of attending this international school. And so literally, like I was, I spent two years with classmates and friends who were from all over the world. And some of them, and they were doing all sorts of different things. Like there were kids who were there who were dipl- like the children of diplomats. There were kids who were there who like their parents worked for oil companies. Like, so, but there were also kids that were there who were just like me, like, you know, whatever it was. Like, it was just this mix of kids. And, um, and again, like I look back at this two year, two year experience, in my childhood where there was no, like there was no majority or minority population, it was just kids from around the world, and when I moved back here, and then as I got older and I'm paying attention to things that are happening around the world or stuff on world news, I could think like, I hear what the news is saying about this country not being great, but like, I played kickball with kids from there, <laughs> or I played soccer, like I yeah. them. And so it for me, it kind of helped me, it has helped me to humanize ex- like and, and just really humanize experiences and news stories and that are that happen from around the globe. And there's like kind of what you get maybe that may be about the United States being being in conflict with another country over something. And I think, okay, but there's people on the ground there who like are are just like me in any number of ways. Right. And For me, that that was a very grounding experience.
0: Yeah, I I think that that would be a powerful and important experience that it's a shame it can't be replicated. Um, Can I ask how it felt, you know, growing up and maybe even how it feels now to have one dark-skinned parent who is Nigerian and one, you know, white parent? And what does that look like living inside of you?
1: Yeah, I, you know... um, so it it it's, it's always interesting, but I my and my I have a brother who's 14 years younger than I am, who lives in the area, and uh, he and I were just talking about this the other day because he has a daughter who's going through elementary school here now, and we were talking about our experiences as kids, and so I will say like I have one black parent, I have white parents, I have uh, my mother's my grand my mom's mom was Swedish, and so when I tell you I have this of swedish cousins Mm -hmm. that like have shown up places that people have been like who that i'm like oh that's my cousin right (laughs) um (laughs) and but largely because right at the time that i was growing going through linden like right you were counting on one hand and i mean you may be counting on one hand still but you're counting on one true actually yeah (laughs) (laughs) and like, no one ever, everybody always saw me as Black. And and I and that just was always the case. You know, I when my brother and I were talking the other day, we were talking about the first time anyone used a racial slur against us. And my first experience was on the school bus to London. And he made it to middle school. But I was like, oh, no, mine was on the school bus on the way to London. And, but my parents, and I think my parents knew, like, they got married at a time where it wasn't legal in every state Stadium. Wow. Yeah. So they just knew. And my 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 grandfather had been just very direct with my mom and been like, Do you understand what you're doing? This decision you're making understand what it means. And um, and so there was a piece where, like, I think they knew, and then my dad also just was like, This can't be the thing. Like, if this is gonna if this is gonna be the thing that knocks you down, like you are never gonna make it. You have to figure out how to like have these experiences but pick yourself up and keep moving and keep achieving and this can't be the thing that defines you um and it became you know I have had people challenge me because I I, I identify as black and I have, have had for a number of years people would ask me but what about your mom and my mom to this day will look at anyone and say no one sees my kids that way everybody sees them as black she will tell, she, she's the first one to tell people that she's the only member of the family who has not been stopped or questioned by police in Doyleston. <laughs> and yeah. he does not believe that's because we're all, all walking like a fine line between, like, with uh, around criminal activity. Like, right. there is a difference and it is a skin color difference. and Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think once they had to contend with the fact that I was kind of landing in this space where I was really interested in somehow doing something around justice work that like, it was also it was also a piece of, this is how I have had to walk through the world. And so while people, everybody else may think, oh, you need to name and acknowledge this whole other side of your family, like my identity has been based very much on how I've experienced the world. And so, and the other side of all the white folks in my family get that and yeah, and and understand and appreciate it. Yeah, that's it's
0: that part of our identity is always fascinating yeah. to me, you know, um, especially because, you know, with siblings, you can have every kind of shade. And it's <laughs> oh, just, you know, so fascinating how people identify. And even that shade, you know, there's no mistaking that it is. Yeah, but Your skin tone is such a powerful part of the way people see you, and and it's just always fascinating to me. It really is always fascinating to me.
1: Well, I think all of, all of us, and I will say all of us, because I would include my cousins and even my cousin's kids in this, all of us have been really fortunate in that we've had parents, and, you know, like... I think my my mom was an only child on my dad's side. There were siblings who like landed all over the place and married to people from all over the place. And so we all look a little bit different, yeah. And because of that experience, like, like we we had adults in our lives who were willing to kind of contend with the fact that folks would challenge us. And so you know, I have a I have a, a my cousin's daughter who is like blonde haired. She lives in England blonde haired, blue eyes, and identified herself as Nigerian in a classroom and her teacher questioned her about that. <laughs> and so like parents stepped in, my grand my like my aunt stepped in and was like, mm, no, here's is yeah. Nigerian, right? My I remember my brother talking about being part Swedish and having a teacher question if you really understood what that meant. And he was like, yeah, you do. But but that's the thing. Like if I say that, you're still gonna question it. And so that's I have right. people, like You know, how I have walked through the world is it's not that I allow people to define me, but I recognize this is how I've experienced the world. This is how I'm going to continue to experience it. And so that's how I identify. And then I'm going to go up with hopefully what you recognize as a broader experience.
0: Right. That's right. I mean, that could be a whole podcast to me in and of itself, you know, and then go into identity um, it's just always fascinating. So then you land in college and you growing up, did you say, This is what I want to be or do? Did you know what you wanted to be or do? Did you have
1: I was just at a, a work meeting in um Kansas City and the facilitator in this meeting, as the icebreaker asked us what we wanted to be when we grew were growing up. And When I was a kid growing up, I was going to be a dancer and a singer. I was obsessed with the show. Same girl, same. (laughs) Like I was really certain that I had made enough like solid responsible decisions by the age of 13 that my parents should let me move to New York and have an apartment and I would be just fine. (laughs) Um, which, needless to say, did not happen, and so I joked in this meeting, and I said, so, you know, once they told me, no, you're not going to New York, like, I decided, okay, I guess I have to save the world, but, um, (laughs) did not, I did not know what I wanted to do, I went to college, I, so I attended Mount Holyoke College, right, which is a women's liberal arts college, and, you know, I went there, and I was like, I guess I'll figure it out over time, um, I had just an incredible and again really defining experience there. Though I don't know that I walked out of there much clearer <laughs> what I wanted to do. Right. That makes sense. And, um, and just thought like I there's situations that need to be fixed, and I think I can creatively come up with ways to try and do that. Um and so after college, when I ended up in California because I went to I had applied to graduate school at UCLA. And so I was going to UCLA for graduate school. I did not finish that program. I hated it, um, but stayed in in California and Los Angeles and um, was sitting in a, I was working for a property management company at the time, sitting in a car with a gentleman who owned a lot of property across Los Angeles County and was also very philanthropic and talking about how he made the decision to give his money away, where he gave to, and I thought, I think I need to sit in that space because I really want to figure out how do I how do I comp- how do I bring resources and need together? Because again, I believe the resources are there. I don't think there is a shortage of resources. It's just figuring out how do I map the path to get them together. And so I went into fundraising, and ended up with a career in nonprofit work.
0: And yeah, that, and then today, what does the Entrepreneurs Funders Network? When I first met you, you were the head of a woman's place.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. I took, I have, so my career is, has been a little bit of a patchwork quilt based on what I was interested in learning at the time. And when I applied for this uh, position with the Entrepreneurship Funders Network, I actually had a friend say to me, your resume suddenly makes so much more sense. (laughs) Like this, this opportunity kind of pulls everything together. Mm. You know, like I started working when I, when I started doing development work, I worked for a foundation out in California and went in, I begged for a job um, and said, I will, I promise to stay here at least two years. If you just teach me everything that you know about fundraising and building a strong development program. And, um, I was literally given the opportunity to touch every piece of the development program. What I figured out about myself later is that, um, and I think I get this from my dad, this kind of engineering mind that likes to take things apart and put them back together and figure out like, if I take it apart, can I put it back together better? And so like, it started with the database and I like, took it apart, put it back together better. We're getting better data. Like, oh, why don't you do our annual campaign? So I figured out how to build an annual campaign. And I was like, oh, why don't you work on major gifts? Why don't you work on donor advised funds? And why don't you do event production? So by the time I left that foundation, I had touched every piece of the development program and, um, and frankly loved it, but had made the decision. I had two daughters and wanted to bring them back to the East Coast so that they could be around multiple generations of the family and have a similar experience that I had. And um, and so I ended up back here. I worked for a little bit with Pennsylvania Hospital doing major this work for them and uh, was volunteering at a woman's place. And uh, they were hiring for a development director there. And so I had <laughs> been volunteering. I was brought onto their board of directors. I was sitting in interviews, helping with the hiring process. And I think it was literally after somebody came in and talked about how much they hated fundraising as they were interviewing for this job. And I just looked at the other people in the room and was like, what are we doing? I don't understand. (laughs) And so had met a friend for drinks after that interview. Like I left there, went to meet a friend for drinks and she was like, I don't understand what you're doing. Like, this is ultimately the job that you had wanted. And they just weren't hiring at the time that you wanted it and she's like but now they are like so just and so i called the next day and the board president and i said if i wanted to apply for this job like what do i need to do and she said i accept your resignation from the board get your application in and so that's how i ended up at a woman's place i started there as a direct their first director of development full-time and then um, worked with an amazing, amazing, amazing executive director, Donna Byrne, who I like, I love to this day. And she, I think, looked at me and was like, oh, do you want to learn something? All right, do it. And just gave me opportunity after opportunity to kind of pick up a piece of work, take on a piece of management, try a new program. And I think just really recognized that if I was learning, I was going to stay connected and interested and passionate about the work. And, um, and so, and then I figured out, like, oh, she has me on a succession path. <laughs> and when she retired from there, um, that's when I stepped in to the executive director role. Um, so I spent about ten years at a woman's place overall, and was just like worked with incredible people and had just an incredible team, and like connected to so many of the people that I worked with at that time who were there. Many of them are there now, but uh, like we have just stayed connected because it was just this incredible experience. But it's when I actually ended up doing—I went back to graduate school to get my master's in nonprofit management while I was there, and um, and could apply. Like, oh, 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 I used a woman's place just as my project for every everything with school, and um, and it gave me this opportunity to really understand every piece of an organization, in in theory and in real time.
0: Amazing. And what is the Entrepreneurship Funders Network? Like what do, what do they
1: do? This is a, a, it's a newer organization. It's so a network, a a group of funders who put money into entrepreneurship started to get together probably around 2016 and they would meet informally. And it really started with folks saying, Oh, you're funding that program. I'm putting that money into that program too. And this is on a national level. So they were foundate their foundations from across the country. and like there aren't a lot of foundations that fund entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship education. And so it can be really isolating work for these these funders. And so they started coming together to kind of talk to each other, learn from each other, share ideas with each other. And so around 2020, um, went through a planning process and realized, hey, this has legs. Maybe we should try and formalize what we're doing and decided we're gonna actually form an organization that makes this an official network of entrepreneurship funders. And so I joined them in 2021 as their inaugural executive director. And so, part of what I'm doing, and again, this is where it kind of ties into I've worked with coalitions in the past, I've worked with networks, I've uh, been involved with membership organizations. Um, I like to build new organizations and, and launch things. And so, This is giving me this opportunity to build, stand up a new entity and a new membership organization. So there's kind of all the nuts and bolts work of that, but also look at how do we make connections and identify folks who are putting money into entrepreneurship in some way and bring them together and really say, hey, out here, you're doing incredible work. The magic's gonna happen when we come into the same room. So I'm gonna set a table for you to sit down here and figure out what's the problem or issue that we're trying to tackle and create the space for you guys to all share ideas. It um, also, right, I, I started this in 21. So right in the midst of the pandemic, I was working, I had a consulting practice at the time and I was sitting in a lot of human services work, at, at, you know, same thing with a woman's place. I've done work with housing, I've, you know, all of this. And so I'm sitting in food conversations, housing conversations in the midst of the pandemic and, you know, doing planning with other community organizations. And I just thought like, it's incredibly important work. So important, such important work. I like have such admiration for folks who are doing it and are really just committed to it. And it is thankless and it's exhausting. It does not pay well. But just so so important how you hold individual lives together. But it's not going to solve the problem. Like it has to happen. And I and I've said to people, I said to someone recently, he said, "Why do you why why would you tell a funder to put money into entrepreneurship?" And I said, "It's like the many other ways that we have like apply binary thinking. Like we've always like that stupid expression about you can give a man a fish or you can teach him to fish." And I was like, "You got to do both." Like, are you sending a hungry guy out to learn how to fish? No. <laughs> That's a and, great point. Like, give them give them the fish, but also teach them to fish. If we want to, you know, build wealth in communities that haven't had it, rebuild wealth in communities where it has been, like, systemically taken away from them, they've been prevented from achieving it. Like, this is how you do it. You may need to help them with housing or food or education access, whatever it may be along the way, but they also are going to need, like, that'll, you know, we can put food into the trunks of cars or, or we can do this. It's not an or, it's an and, it's a both and, we have to do both. Like, I'm going to give you the meal, but I'm also going, I'm going to help you with transportation, but I'm going to teach you how to start your business, how to build your business, how to run your business. I'm going to support you on along the way. Help give you connections to mentors, put you into networks and systems that can really support you. Because I, to me, that's really the only way we actually solve for the, all these issues.
0: Yeah, that that's really powerful and has the ring of truth. Yeah. You know, and, and I would think it's also, you know, a, a longevity thing because I I don't think you can say here are the tools, here's how you do it, here's oh, no. some food. See you later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this has always been and I, I have a, a very good friend who works for a foundation and when I took this job she called me like we met for dinner like four months later and she started laughing at me she said so what do you think now that you're in the room with funders and because I have often like been challenged by this idea that like you know a foundation gives you money they tell you it's for a year and you're supposed to kind of come out of it with a success story and I remember at a woman's place saying, like saying to people, like, you just gave me five thousand dollars. Like, what did you think that was gonna do? Like, that's not that's not putting anybody in a house with a white picket fence and a puppy dog running around and kids playing happily in the background. Like this is this 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 is work that takes time. We have to be in it for the long game. And so our solutions have to be in it for the long game too. And and you don't create, like in this country, if you're looking at things like you know, racial equity and what that's done in terms of access to, to wealth and, and and you know, and frankly, the uh, systems that have blocked generational wealth, you put that, you put that system into place for hundreds of years. Why am I solving it in 12 months?
0: Like, <laughs> right. that is, that's <laughs> another really, really, really good point. <laughs>
1: yeah, like this is, these are long-term efforts. And so really figuring out, like, how do we, how do we come at it from multiple angles? And I spent a lot of time sitting on the human services side and this opportunity showed up at a point where I was like, I need, I need to sit in a, in a different energy and in a different room with different people. I like, I can connect the dots very clearly in my head. And frankly, I could connect the dots, you know, uh, and, and when I was meeting with folks about the job, I actually ended up telling the story of my dad. Cause they asked me, can you, do you feel like you can relate the the value of entrepreneurship to? community health. And I was like, my dad was designing water systems. He was trying to create access to clean water. He was trying to create a way to keep the power on so a student could finish a research project. Absolutely, there's connections. And I think if we're going to solve for any of the many issues that our communities face and really help people and communities be at their best, entrepreneurship is an essential tool with to that. So it's just, it's a, a blast to work in this space.
0: I love it. I love it. <laughs> because even with you know what I'm doing with soulful living and soulful connections, I can't erase the entrepreneurial aspect to it. Okay. Whatever you're doing, um you know, living your purpose, it it all ties in. I just think it's, you know, empowering and it is um, it, there's just so many levels to that discussion of the power of entrepreneurial endeavors and efforts and what that means for yourself and for your community um so if you look back like if you think of that little girl in Nigeria here planning to like sing and dance on cars i would have been on the cafeteria right. table with you i would have totally done that with you i was like every school needs to immediately stop
1: and why are we all breaking out into song
0: i feel like we should do that right this minute but (laughs) don't worry (laughs) don't get scared (laughs) we won't (laughs) that's next podcast yes Um, but if you kind of look at where you are where you're going where you've been like is there kind of a through line that is that you can see?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think the through line for me has been like, I recognize that there are systems in place. Like I very quickly figured out there are systems in place, but that it's really all about people. And if you can make the right connections between people, whether it's the sharing of an idea, the share, whatever that resource is, money, food, ideas, solutions, whatever that is, it's how do we make sure those connections get made? And I think that has always been the thing that's driven me, you know, I sit in a space now where folks talk about entrepreneur, entrepreneurial ecosystems and ecosystem builders. And when I first started in this role, I had somebody say, ask me about being an ecosystem builder. And I was like, oh, I was like, that's not, you know I don't think that's what they hired me for. And, um and then he was asking me, like, he literally asked me for, like, this path through my career to talk about why I took roles, what I was doing, how I approached my work. And and I said, like, in the end, whatever I'm doing, there's this moment where I kind of stop and ask this question, who else cares about this? And I did the same thing at a woman's place. I thought, like, we might be doing domestic violence work, and we might be the only domestic violence organization in Buck's County, but... Other people care about that ability to have safe homes and thriving families and thriving lives. Who else cares? And it's why I ended up working with Bex County Opportunity Council. It was like I would just go to people and say, let's talk about how we can work together and how our our paths, our work intersects, because I'm not saving that one person. It's going to be a team effort across all these programs. And so I said, I just, you know, I like to ask who else cares and then pull them into the room for a system, for a conversation. And he laughed and he said, you're an ecosystem builder. And he was like, you just don't call it that. (laughs) And like, you know, I don't, I've I've never sat in spaces that talked about ecosystem builders, but I did just think like, who cares? Who else do we talk to? It's why, like, I would end up at the chamber because to me, like, if communities aren't safe, businesses aren't going to thrive. So I need businesses to care about what's happening with individual lives. It's why schools need to care because there are students who are walking into, into this classroom, not just struggling to get their homework done, but they're struggling because, you know, these five other things are happening back at home. You know, all of it, like all of it is connected. And so like, how do we figure out, like, we don't have to all do the same thing. It's gonna work better if we're not all doing the same thing. With that same, like we share, generally share a vision that we want a vibrant, successful, thriving community. And so what's the part that we're bringing and how do we make sure we're working in concert with each other?
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider giving it a great rating and following all the things you do when you like a podcast. Thank you to William Aronson for writing, producing, recording The Soulful Connections theme song. And once again, thank you for listening. I hope you keep tuning in.